Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 168 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up in this week's episode, we begin with details of a data breach with a difference in Newby in Northern Ireland. We then have news that UK voice over IP systems are subject to distributed denial of service attacks. We then travel to Bradford, where a lady is reporting that NHS test and trace have suffered a data breach. And we then have news that a location data collection firm has been criticised for its breaches of GDPR. We then have a very interesting result of a hearing here in the High Court in the UK, which has actually awarded costs against the claimant who was claiming damages because of a data breach. We then have news of a data breach involving an overlap trial at Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital. And we then travel to the USA where an investigation is underway after a New York hospital suffered a data breach. We then travel to South Africa where Experian South Africa has had yet more data exposed after a data breach. And then to the Netherlands where the Dutch tax authorities have been judged to have seriously violated GDPR. We then travel to Canada where the IRCC has had a data breach which has exposed details of vulnerable Afghans. And then to the USA again where the University of Colorado Boulder has had a data breach. We then have some security advice which has been circulated by Google. And then remaining in the USA, we have news of millions of medical data records being exposed in a data breach. We then travel to Thailand, when Centara Hotels and Resorts has had a data breach. And then back to the USA, to Florida, where Art Basel has had a data breach. We then have news in the USA that Connecticut has updated its data protection law. And then finally this week, we have comments from Elizabeth Denham herself about the government's data consultation which is currently underway. So there's always a wide range of articles for you this week here on the GDPR Weekly Show. We hope you find the information useful and informative. As always, if you have any feedback for us, we welcome feedback, so please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive, and wherever possible we incorporate your suggestions for improvements into the show. But unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, it's not always possible to respond to each piece of feedback individually. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. We begin this week with news from Northern Ireland, and in particular from Newry, and a reminder perhaps that data breaches don't always affect computer data. They can affect good old paper as well. And that's something, if you've attended our training, you'll be aware of. But just a reminder that GDPR applies right across the board. So not just computer records, but anything that's held on paper records. And that includes checks from the bank. And that's particularly relevant to this story in Newry because while the streets of Newry weren't quite paved with gold last week, they were paved with money as £2 million rained down on the city centre. Pedestrians couldn't believe their eyes as hundreds of checks fluttered down the street on the breeze. Checks were made out to businesses and private individuals littered the mail in the centre of Newry. One of the pedestrians, Declan O'Callaghan, couldn't believe his eyes. It was unbelievable. I was walking through the town when all these bits of paper came floating down the street, he said. There were hundreds of them. I caught a few and realised they were checks. So he set about gathering them up. By the time he'd finished, he had a bundle of more than 400, with a face value totalling in excess of £2 million. The amounts of the individual checks ranged from £50 to £125,000 and had people's names and company names on them all lying there in the street. The breach, which was first reported by the Sunday World newspaper, appears to have started from the back of a branch of the AIB bank in Newry. 
We've contacted the Information Commissioner, the ICO, who says at the moment they weren't aware of the incident and reminded everyone that, of course, the incident should be reported to them within 72 hours of a data breach occurring. They also said that banks have a duty of care to customers to protect their private information. It's understood that there were a number of checks clearly written to cover membership of the Masonic Order, a largely secret organisation that protects the identity of their members. Payments to and from solicitors' offices were also included, and also checks payable to a hospice, Newry Morn and Down Council, the Education Board and a host of other public bodies. Now, it should be said that all these chats have already been processed, so there was no monetary value to them, there was no financial gain in someone stealing them, but nonetheless, of course, they shouldn't have been allowed just to blow down the high street. The chats are understood to have been drawn from accounts on every high street bank, Allied Irish, Ulster and Santander amongst them. Declan O'Callaghan said he believed the chats were blown down the street from the river branch of AIB, or the Allied Irish Bank. I took the checks into them and said they'd compromised people's private information, he said. They said the checks had nothing to do with them. When we contacted the bank, a spokesperson for the bank confirmed that an incident had taken place and they said AIB is aware of an incident in the vicinity of its nearby branch relating to materials that were in a security van. We have investigated with the security company in question who have assured us no AIB material or customer data was compromised. We don't know at the moment who the security company were. Now, part of this is not at all abnormal because routinely checks are taken from bank branches once they've been processed by a security firm to a central location. If we get any update on this from AIB or the ICO or indeed any other banks affected, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour is close at hand. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Several voiceover internet protocol VOIP providers in the UK have been subjected to distributed denial of service DDoS attacks, resulting in numerous outages affecting the public and private sector. The UK Comms Council, which oversees the VoIP providers, confirmed on Tuesday that several of its members and a number of international providers, including some from North America, have been fielding DDoS attacks for the past four weeks. It also said the attacks appear to be part of a coordinated extortion-focused international campaign by professional cyber criminals. One effective vendor, VoIP Unlimited, previously suggested that the evidence pointed to Reville, the infamous Russian-based ransomware group. The UK Toms Council, which is tasked with lobbying on behalf of the industry and developing best practice, has offered very little detail on the attacks and the affected parties. However, it has confirmed its members supplied VOIP services to the likes of the police, NHS and other public services, adding that attacks on our members are attacks on the foundations of UK infrastructure. We are liaising closely with the UK Government, National Cyber Security Centre, Ofcom and international agencies to share information and details about the nature of the attacks in the expectation of halting this criminal activity as quickly as possible, the UK Toms Council said in a statement. We are confident that with the joined-up government-led initiative, this damaging criminal activity can be halted. When we contacted the UK Toms Council and the National Cyber Security Centre, neither were able to comment on specific lenders that may or may not be affected by these coordinated DDoS attacks. What we do know is that London-based VoIP phone is experiencing service disruptions according to its status page. On Wednesday morning, the company issued a statement saying we continue to work on addressing the issues affecting our network. A level of service has been restored, but there was still a risk of further disruption. We will continue to update as the incident progresses. If we get any update on this from either the National Cyber Security Centre or the UK Commons Council, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Show. 
Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. To Bradford now, and a woman has raised concerns about the NHS test and trace system after she was told to self-isolate, but then received emails which related to other people. Adele Evans of Queensbury said that on top of the email about her own situation, she then received six more which appeared to relate to the same family, advising them to book a test as they had been in close contact with a positive COVID-19 case. She said it contained their unique ID and names in breach of GDPR, and said it raised the concern of where and who had received her information. Ms Evans has lodged the complaint over the issue and questioned how it happened. Is her own data secure? How can she be assured that her data has not been passed on to anyone else? And will the other people be contacted to advise them that their data has been sent to someone else? When we spoke with the Health Security Agency, a test and trace spokesperson said, Test and trace successfully carries out hundreds of thousands of tests every day, and in the overwhelming majority of instances there are no issues with the process. That is, we take reports of errors during the testing process very seriously, and all complaints are investigated. A UK firm which sells people's location data has admitted that some of its information was gained without seeking permission from users. Huck uses location data from apps on people's phones and sells it on to clients which include dozens of English and Scottish councils. It said that it discovered two cases where its application partners had not asked for consent from users, but it added that that issue had now been rectified. In a statement, the firm said it was aware of two technical breaches of data privacy requirements, but it added that it asked both of the developers to rectify their code and republish their apps, which they had done. Huck data is used anonymously. Nevertheless, consent is a vital pillar of data collection and must be taken seriously. We strive to ensure consent is explicitly sought by all our app partners. If there's a breach, we always act swiftly, said Conrad Paulson, chief executive of Huck. Kybit Software, which developed one of the apps in question, admitted that there had been problems with the permissions, but they were now resolved. The second app developer has not responded to a request for comment. Huck did not rule out the possibility that other apps may have failed to ask for proper consent. It is possible that we or our partners may uncover future technical issues, but what's important is how quickly we act and how seriously we take the issues, they said. The apps in question, one of which measured Wi-Fi strength and the other that scanned barcodes, have been highlighted in a story published by Vice. It questioned how clear it was to users that apps they had downloaded for one purpose were now sharing information for a completely different one. Hark advertised a range of services on its website promoting how its real-time footfall metrics can be used to discover where people go and why. So, for instance, the council to use the data it provides to estimate how many people visited a high street within a given time frame. App Census, a company that analyses the privacy of apps, looked at which apps Hark did business with. It found ones for flight tracking, weather and Muslim prayers were among those sending information to the company. According to analysis from Danish TV2, Android apps are far more likely to pass on location data than iPhones. Firms that collect location data from apps and then sell it on are under increased scrutiny. The Danish Data Authority is currently looking into whether there is a legal basis for the way that Huck processes personal data. Meanwhile, the UK ICO has issued a reprimand to another UK-based location data collection firm, Tomoko, for failing to provide sufficient privacy information to UK citizens. It said that it had asked the firm to review the personal data they collected to ensure that UK citizens' data is no longer processed and that any remaining records should be deleted. Back in 2019, Norwegian broadcaster NRK bought raw location data from Tomoko for £3,000. What it received was 460 million rows of data from more than 140,000 phones and tablets. While it did not contain any names or mobile numbers, it did offer granular insights into people's movements, which enabled the broadcaster to find out the real identities of people. 
It allowed them to trap people in what journalist Martin Gunderson described as a frightening detail. The data showed one man as he went to hospital and a job interview, and another, a member of the military, had their movements tracked every time they left an army base to other locations. If we get any comment from Tomoko on this, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll know that we've mentioned in recent weeks how courts, not just in the UK but across Europe, have been taking a stricter line on deciding when a victim of a data breach is actually able to get compensation and what that compensation should be. And this week, the High Court in the UK has trumped that. Not only did it say that no damages were payable to the person making the claim, it actually awarded costs against the claimant to the company which had been subject to the data breach. So to go in a bit more detail, the High Court has imposed indemnity costs on a family that claimed damages for distress after a law firm accidentally sent an email about outstanding school fees to the wrong person. For the court, this describing the data breach as trivial, Master McLeod said the person who received the email sent by a paralegal was unknown and confirmed to Bill Fosborough Vizards that the email had been deleted the following day. According to the Rolfs family solicitor at Northwest firm Forbes, they had lost sleep worrying about the possible consequences of the data breach and it had made them feel ill. The judge went on, Much of the alleged distress stemmed here from the fear of the unknown, too, it was said, by the parents in terms of who the recipient might have been, given Mr Rolfe's profession as an IT specialist. Ruling it was more than fanciful to suppose either that actual loss had been suffered or that distress had been suffered above a de minimis level, the judge said, what harm has been done, arguably. We have here a case of minimally significant information, Nothing especially personal, such as bank details or medical matters. A very rapid set of steps to ask the incorrect recipient to delete it, which she confirmed, and no evidence of further transmission or any consequent misuse, and it would be hard to imagine what significant misuse could result, given the minimally private nature of the data. We have a plainly exaggerated claim for time spent by the claimants dealing with the case, and a frankly inherently implausible suggestion that the minimal breach caused significant distress and worry, or even made them feel ill. In my judgment, no person of ordinary fortitude would reasonably suffer the distress claimed arising in these circumstances in the 21st century, in a case where a single breach was quickly remedied. There is no credible case that distress or damage over de minimis threshold will be proved. In the modern world, it is not appropriate for a party to claim, especially in the high court, for breaches of this sort which are frankly trivial. Delivering judgment in Rolf and others versus Ville was for Vizards, Master McLeod said the case related to a single email with attachments sent by the law firm in July 2019. Alan and Karen Rolfe owed a sum of school fees to a school represented by Bill Vosborough Vizards, who had been instructed to write to them with a demand for payment. The master said the email contained a letter and a copy of a statement of account for their daughter. Due to a one-letter difference in the mother's email address, the email sent by mistake to someone with identical surname and same first initial. The recipient of the email responded promptly, the law firm replied promptly and the recipient confirmed that it had been deleted. The family claimed damages for misuse of confidential information, breach of confidence, negligence and under Section 82 of GDPR and Section 169 of the Data Protection Act 2018, the law firm applied for summary judgment in January this year. Granting summary judgment, Master McLeod said the case law provided ample authority that whatever causes of action is relied on in the law will not supply remedy in cases where effectively no harm has credibly been shown or likely to be shown. 
She imposed indemnity costs on the basis of the strong observation of this tort as to the nature of the claim in terms of exaggeration and lack of credible evidence of distress. She said the High Court regarded the claim as speculative, given its de minimis nature, and took into account a Part 36 offer made by the defendant, which it beat. Master McLeod ordered the claimants to make an interim payment to the defendant on account of costs of £11,000, which she described as a conservative sum. I think this case is particularly relevant because it's the first time that we've not just seen no damages awarded, but actually costs awarded against the person making the claim. And hopefully these things will together serve to stop what are effectively fanciful claims making their way through the judicial system and in some ways making a mockery of GDPR because GDPR is there to protect data. Yes, when it's really important, when it's sensitive data, when it's something like this, mistakes happen and it's much more difficult, therefore, to prove credible harm. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse Thursday, 4pm UK time. Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital has apologised and opened an investigation following the breach of patient data. Once again, as we mentioned last week, this is another case where an email has been sent using the CC field rather than the BCC field, and so it's allowed email addresses to be visible. It's understood that the organiser of a vaccine trial at the Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital emailed an unknown number of patients using the CC field, which allowed their email addresses to be seen and shared. The hospital is participating in a trial of a COVID vaccine manufactured by the US pharmaceutical company Novavax. Around 500 patients and staff in the hospital were involved in the trial, a randomised controlled trial where half of participants received two shots of the vaccine and the other half received two shots of the placebo. Due to their participation in the trial, some patients have not received an approved vaccine, a problem the email was intending to rectify. A participant in the study who asked to remain anonymous said, the hospital trials finally got round to asking participants if they wanted one, two or no Pfizer shots. The problem is that they sent the message to all participants in an open email. This exposed the email address of all the participants in the study to all the other participants. They then recorded the message, claimed to have turned themselves in to the appropriate officials at the hospital and left all the study participants, Novavax refugees, still paying the price for taking part in this study. The trials have shown the vaccine to be 90% effective. Yesterday, Novavax filed for its first authorisation for general use anywhere in the world, applying to UK authorities. Its chief executive said authorisation from the US Food and Drug Administration would be sought later this year. A spokesman for the hospital said, We take the protection of personal information extremely seriously and we sincerely apologise to the clinical trial participants affected. Following an administrative error, immediate action was taken to recall an email that included the email addresses of some Novavax vaccine trial participants. We've launched an internal investigation following this data breach. Our research team continues to work hard to support everyone involved in the Novavax vaccine trial at our hospital who wishes to receive an approved vaccine. Darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour is close at hand. <laughs> Happy Halloween. To America now and an investigation is underway after a network server breach that affected 24,891 patients at Syracuse-based Speciality Surgery Centre of Central New York. The centre discovered unauthorised access to its network on March 31st, terminated the access and launched an investigation that concluded around April 30th, according to a letter from the surgery centre posted October 14th by the Office of the Vermont Attorney General. The hospital launched a second investigation to determine which patients had been specifically affected and received a list from a cybersecurity firm around August 16th. 
The Speciality Surgery Centre of Central New York immediately notified the affected patients and state and federal regulators after receiving the list. In the letter, it said they had no reason to believe that the compromised information has been misused, but it was notifying patients out of an abundance of caution. Since the breach, the hospital says it's implemented antivirus software, locked down external websites and implemented a warning banner of external email amongst other security controls. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com Back in episode 162, we brought you news of a data breach at Experia in South Africa. And this week, the information red data in South Africa has expressed its shock that yet more Experian customer data was recently leaked on Telegram in what appears to be a continuation of the data breach that Experian suffered last year. According to a statement issued by the Information Watchdog, it says it learned on 24th of October this year that customer data was compromised in a third instant when the personal information of people whose data had been part of the Experian data breach was placed on Telegram messaging application over the weekend. The regulator notes it was alerted by a whistleblower that some of the data subjects whose personal information was leaked on Telegram include private individuals, business leaders, prosecutors, judges, ministers, politicians and senior public officials. The database containing this personal information was downloaded over 100 times before Telegram removed the page with the link to the database. The regulator is deeply concerned that personal information that had been illegally accessed in 2020 remains accessible contrary to assurances to the regulator that the personal information had been removed from platforms where it had been dumped in 2020, said the regulator chairperson, advocate Pansy Talerker. Telegram took the right decision by removing the page with a link from its platform. However, this came late because the database of the personal information of data subjects had already been downloaded more than 100 times. This means this data is still available in the public domain. Given the massive amount of data that was illegally obtained from its in 2020 and the evidence that this data remains in various platforms, contrary to assurances that have been given to us, it is clear that we have not yet seen the last incident of this type of exposure of people's personal information. In a letter sent to the regulator on 24th of October 2021, Experian stated that in response to this latest violation of data subjects' privacy rights, the Credit Bureau submitted a takedown notice request to the Telegram and it also informed law enforcement agencies. In a statement, Experian said, Experian has reported to the regulator that it has instructed its lawyers to request the mobile operator to suspend the cell phone account of the user that dumped the data and made it publicly accessible on the messaging platform. According to Experian, the identity of the person who was illegally disclosed the personal information and data subjects without their consent is unknown, the regulator said. The regulator went on to say, We urge members of the public to exercise caution when coming across the link that supposedly contains a database with details of millions of South Africans, which could well be a link is a Trojan horse for other malware. We further appeal to members of the public that de- sent the link to the messaging app not to distribute it any further. By doing so, they would be perpetuating the commission of a crime in terms of our laws re- regulating the protection of personal information and law on cybercrime. In September 2021, the Hawks Serious Commercial Crime Investigation Unit announced in a statement that it arrested a 36-year-old suspect in Guatang for his alleged involvement in the Experian data breach. According to the regulator, an independent investigation commissioned after the incident found Experian had entered into a commercial engagement with a person misrepresenting themselves as the director of a legitimate company. The perpetrator provided Experian South Africa with over 25 million names, surnames and South African identity numbers, which Experian South Africa verified. The data shared by Experian South Africa was limited to contact information for the persons contained in the data set provided by the perpetrator, including telephone, email and physical addresses, and employment data, which includes the place of work, title, start date and work contact details. 
It is understood that no personal consumer credit financial or banking information was shared by Experience South Africa. The regulator concluded, The regulator has a responsibility to the data subjects and the public, and we will not hesitate to take strong action should we find evidence of continued activity that compromises the security of personal information of any person. To the Netherlands now, and the Dutch tax authorities seriously violated the GDPR privacy law by processing the data of approximately a quarter of a million citizens for years in the FSB, which acted as a blacklist of possible fraudsters. This is inclusion of the Dutch Data Protection Authority after an investigation. The investigation confirmed the view that people could end up on a blacklist at the slightest signal. An anonymous report from, for example, an angry neighbour or a jealous ex-partner could be enough, and once on the list, you could never get off. The data was also kept for far too long and was accessible to too many tax authority employees. Allied Volson, the chairman of the data regulator, said the tax authority must obviously tackle fraud, but our investigation showed that tax authority registered and used fraud signals in a way that is absolutely not allowed. Innocent people were victimised as a result. FSV was in use from late 2013 to early 2020. A predecessor to the system was online since 2001. The system was only turned off after media publications about the blacklist discredited the tax authority. Further investigation is yet to show in which ways people were affected by the registration in FSV. In any case, it is known that the blacklist played a role in the child care allowance scandal. For example, people on the FSV were refused a payment arrangement when their child care allowances were reclaimed. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Canada now, and the IRCC has quietly apologised for leaking names and some faces of several hundred at-risk Afghans. The names of several hundred vulnerable Afghans seeking refuge from the Taliban were recently leaked in emails sent in error by the Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada, IRCC, according to a report by CBC News. The Afghans in question fear reprisals from the Taliban who took over the country in August. Some are in hiding because of past roles in the Afghan government, the armed forces, the judiciary, or as human rights or women's rights activists. One email seen by CBC News listed 200 names. Not only did the names and emails appear, but also in some cases you could see their faces. The risks of such a release are serious. It would only be necessary for the Taliban to see a single copy of the email to obtain all 200 names. The IRCC has been writing to people in question to apologise. In one such email sent on Friday, IRCC Director of Client Experience, Anne Termal, says the person's information was leaked on October 18th when a unit within the department sent four emails to multiple clients simultaneously regarding the Afghanistan situation. The email addresses for the Afghans were in the 2 field instead of the BCC field. Once again, another example of this data breach which we keep bringing to your attention here on GDPR Weekly Show. Termel wrote that consequently personal email addresses were shared with the recipients. Please note that by the same means we inadvertently sent you information on October 18, 2021 pertaining to other individuals. Despite assurances by the Taliban that there would be no reprisals or revenge, rights groups have documented an effort to track down and kill some of their former enemies. UN Human Rights Commissioner Michelle Bachelet last month recounted credible allegations of reprisal killings of former security personnel and arbitrary detention of former officials. In some cases, the officials were released and in others they were found dead, she said to the Human Rights Council. Pakistan's ISI intelligence service is widely believed to work closely with the Taliban despite official Pakistani denials. Stories of this leak of information come after Britain's Conservative government was already forced to apologise for a very similar data breach in September that revealed 250 names. Defence Secretary Ben Wallace told the House of Commons he was angered by the leak and had ordered an official inquiry by the country's information commissioner. 
it's understood that one civil servant is currently suspended. If we get any update on this from the IRCC, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Show. To the USA now, and a data breach at Colorado University has potentially exposed the personal details of 30,000 current and former students. The University of Colorado Boulder announced that the incident was a result of a cyber attack on third-party service Atlassian. Atlassian is a software program used by the institution's Office of Information Technology to share resources and documents. As a result of the attack, some files stored in the program were illegally accessed with potentially exposed data including personally identified information for current and former students that included names, student ID numbers, addresses, dates of birth, phone numbers and genders. In a statement, the University of Colorado Boulder said it was preparing to implement a new version of the software when attackers took advantage of a known vulnerability to gain access. The university said it will notify those sought to be affected by email and that most individuals impacted are no longer affiliated with the Colorado University Boulder as a student or employee. Anyone affected by the breach will be offered free credit monitoring services. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. Google has issued some advice after noticing that people were increasingly using weak passwords. It recommended a number of simple tips for people to follow. Firstly, cultivate security consciousness, build better passwords. Recycling digital passwords is like using the same key to lock your home, car and office. If someone gains access to one, all of them could be compromised. The same holds true for weak passwords. Secondly, a unique and robust password for each account can help to reduce this risk. Make sure that each password is hard to guess and better yet, at least 8 characters long. To make this easier, consider using a password manager such as LastPass to help create stronger passwords, safeguard them and keep track of all of them. Setting up two-factor authentication, also known as two-step verification, significantly decreases the chances of someone gaining unauthorised access to an individual's account. For the majority, Google's automatic sign-in protections are more than enough, but everyone should know that two-factor authentication is an additional form of verification, which provides an added layer of security. And finally, Google recommends that people take up Google's security checkup, which is a step-by-step tool that users can use frequently to strengthen the security of their Google account and provides users with personalised and actionable with security recommendations. This guide users to review connected devices, risky third-party sites and apps that have access to sensitive information, as well as two-factor authentication options. You can access Google's security checkup just by going to g.co forward slash security checkup, all one word. Darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour is close at hand. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Remaining in America, and it's perhaps shocking that over 40% of surveyed healthcare organisations have not yet implemented an instant response plan to account to the constant threats of phishing, ransomware, and cybersecurity vulnerabilities. Perhaps this is brought home again this week with news that a non-password protected database containing millions of healthcare records and 68.5 gigabytes of medical-related data has reportedly been discovered by security researcher Jeremiah Fowler and the website Planet Research team. The medical records in the exposed database apparently contain patient IDs, physician notes and other detailed medical data on patients in the US. While some of this data was encrypted, the notes and information on physicians were all in plain text. The physician notes in the database provide intimate details of patient illnesses, treatments, medications, family, social and even emotional issues. In addition to being very complete descriptions, Fowler and the website Planet Research team 
was applied by just so many small details were included in the notes. In its report, website Planet warns that if the patient IDs in the database were decrypted and the identities of patients were exposed, it would be easy to see the medical issues or diagnosis of patients whose medical data was left unsecured online. In total, Fowler and website Planet Research team found 21 million records exposing lab results and medicine details, 422 million patient records, and a provider index containing 89,000 records exposing physician names, internal patient ID numbers, document locations and CSV files and other potentially sensitive information. The database in question was also at risk of falling victim to a ransomware attack as it was publicly accessible to anyone with an internet connection. After discovering the database, Fowler and the website Planet Research team immediately sent a responsible disclosure notice to Deep6.ai and public access was restricted shortly after. However, their discovery is yet another example of how leaving a database unsecured can put sensitive data at risk. A spokesperson for Deep6 AI who were processing the data put out a statement saying, Despite recent claims, no personal or patient health data was accessed, leaked or at risk from a Deep6 AI proof-of-concept database. In August, a security researcher accessed a test environment that contained dummy data from MIT's Medical Information Martyr Intensive Care System, an industry standard source for de-identified health-related test data. To confirm no real patient data or records were included in this test environment and it was completely isolated from our production systems. Based on current reporting, we have confirmed that the recent claims referenced the MIMIC data and there was no access to real patient records. When the researcher notified us in August, we immediately secured the test environment to ensure there was no further concern. Data security and privacy is a top priority at DeepSits AI and the responsibility to protect data is at the core of our business and top of mind for all our people. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. Cyber attackers claimed to have stolen the passport details and other personal information from visitors who stayed at Centara Hotels and Resorts in Thailand. The CEO of Centara Hotels and Resorts said in a statement that on October 14th they were made aware of a cyber attack on the hotel chain's network. An investigation confirmed that cyber attackers had in fact breached their system and accessed the data of some customers. The data access includes names, booking information, phone numbers, email addresses, home addresses and photos of ID. The company did not say if the IDs accessed include passports, which are often asked for by hotels like Centara Hotels and Resorts. Whilst the breach has been successfully contained, the investigation into the source, root cause and complete extent of the incident remains ongoing and we will provide more information when it becomes available, the hotel said. The hotel chain went on to urge the hotel's customers to change their passwords as soon as possible and to remain aware of any suspicious or unsolicited emails and or calls requesting personal information. We can confirm that we at Centara Hotels and Resorts will not be contacting you to ask for any personally identifiable information, the hotel chain said, noting that anyone with questions should email or call the hotel. The Disorder Group, which claimed responsibility for two recent attacks on laptop maker Acer, which we brought you details of in previous episodes here with the GDPR Weekly Show, said it was behind the attack on Centara Hotels and Resorts. In addition to the attack on Centara Hotels and Resorts, Disorder claimed to have breached the service of Central Group, which owns the hotel chain and more than 2,000 restaurants across Thailand. That breach involved 80 gigabytes of files, including personal information of customers and business details of each restaurant. Disorder would not respond to questions about whether this was a ransomware attack, but claimed they basically brought down the entire backend, consisting of five servers. They said they'd stolen 400 gigabytes of data over the course of 10 days, and that the data includes information about everyone who stayed at any of the 70 luxury hotels owned by the Thai conglomerate between 2003 and 2021. 
They claimed the data includes people's passport numbers and ID numbers. There was even data from people who booked in advance up to December 2021. The group tried to claim they were assisting the hotel by showing them how they might mitigate future attacks and said they were the ones who notified the company that they'd been hacked. Operators connected to this order say they were negotiating a ransom payment of 900,000 US dollars, but the company backed out of the deal on Tuesday. As a result, Desordon is now threatening to leak the information. When we contacted Centara Hotels and Resorts and Central Restaurants Group, they refused to respond to requests for any comment about negotiations with the hackers. Back to America now, and just over a month before its fair in Miami Beach, Art Basel said that his parent company, MCH Group, had been the subject of a data breach last week. In an email to those who had previously registered for fair access, the fair wrote that MCH Group was hit by a criminal cyber attack using malware. It said MCH Group had filed a criminal complaint against the perpetrators unknown to us. Known for bringing together international collectors, celebrities and royalty, Art Basel's fairs are considered some of the most important events in the art world. Based on the newsletter from Art Basel, the extent of the attack wasn't clear. A spokesperson from Art Basel did not respond to a request for comment. Art Basel did say in a statement that the information currently available to us suggests that the perpetrators may have gained access to data such as personal contact details. We do not yet know the extent of the data breach and these traces are being analysed in cooperation with cybersecurity experts as a matter of urgency. Keeping your information safe is our utmost priority and we are taking the necessary measures to protect you and continue to work with a wide range of internal and external specialists to resolve the issues. The breach comes at an unfortunate time for Art Basel, which is returning to hosting in-person events after a year in which it had to move all of its events online. After multiple delays, it switched this and was finally held in September. Art Basel Miami Beach opens at the end of November to VIPs. Darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour is close at hand. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Effective from October the 1st this year, an amendment to the Connecticut General Statute concerning data privacy breaches, section 36A to 701B, will impact notification obligations in several significant ways. The amendment expands the definition of personal information, shortens the notification deadline after the discovery of a breach from 90 days to 60 days, removes the requirement to consult with law enforcement as part of a risk assessment, deems compliant any person subject to and in compliance with HIPAA and high tech, and provides certain exemptions from public disclosure for materials provided to the state in response to an investigation of a breach of security. The extension of personal information says that instead of just social security number, driver's license number or state identification number or credit or debit card number or any financial account number in combination with the required security code, access code or password that would permit access to a financial account, the following are now also included within personal information in Connecticut. They are the taxpayer identification number, identity protection personal identification number issued by the IRS, Passport number, military identification number or other identification number issued by the government that is commonly used to verify identity. Medical information, medical history, mental or physical health condition, medical treatment or diagnosis by a healthcare professional. Health insurance policy number or subscriber identification number or any unique identifier used by a health insurer to identify the individual. And any biometric information consisting of data generated by electronic measurements of an individual's unique physical characteristics used to authenticate or ascertain the individual's identity, whether that be a fingerprint, voice print, retina or iris image. 
The definition of personal information is also extended to include username or electronic email address in combination with a password or security question and answer that would permit access to an online account. The reduction of the notification window to 60 days brings the legislation internationally more in line with other states, although of course there are some states such as Colorado and Florida who've reduced it down to 30 days. Under Connecticut's prior law, individuals whose social security number was breached or believed to have been breached were required to receive an offer of identity theft prevention or mitigation services for free for at least 24 months. The amended law now expands this requirement to breaches involving social security numbers and taxpayer identification numbers. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll know that we've mentioned several times now the consultation which is currently open in the UK called Data A New Direction, being organised by the Department for Culture, Media and Sport. Having at the time of its launch supported the changes proposed in the consultation, the Information Commissioner herself, Elizabeth Denham, has now issued her thoughts on the proposed changes. On one of the changes that the government believes that the one-size-fits-all approach disproportionately affects smaller businesses that may not have the same proportionate level of risk associated with data protection, Elizabeth Denham agrees. She said, I support the intention of the proposals to make innovation easier for organisations. I agree there are ways in which the legislation can be changed to make it simpler for companies to do the right thing when it comes to our data. Perhaps most notably, it's vital that the inevitable regulatory and administrative obligations of legal compliance are proportionate to the risk of an organisation's data processing activities represent. That means finding proportionate ways for organisations to demonstrate their accountability for how they collect, store, use and share our data. They must ensure data is safe and is not used in ways that might cause harm. And they must ensure that all people are able to exercise rights over their personal data. Now, it should be said that the UK government estimates that the reform package will have a net direct benefit of £1.04 billion over 10 years, even after accounting for potential costs incurred through any future changes to the UK's EU adequacy decisions. While the ICO is broadly supportive of the government's plans, Denham noted that the devil is in the detail and said the government needs to ensure the final package clearly maintains rights for individuals. Denham said, We need a legislative framework with people at its heart, and I'm pleased to see the consultation recognises the importance of maintaining and building public trust. It is crucial we continue to see the opportunities of digital innovation and maintain the high data protection standards as joint drivers of economic growth. Innovation is enabled, not threatened, by high data protection standards. However, the consultation also calls for some reform of the ICO's organisation itself, which is where Denham takes particular issue with the consultation. She said, An independent regulator assures the public of their protections and maintains trust in data-driven innovation. By holding government and public institutions to account, an independent ICO also builds trust in innovative uses of data in the public sector and trust in democracy itself. And the independence of the regulator is key to the high standards that will help deliver future global trade and adequacy agreements. Despite this broad support for the proposals to reform the ICO's constitution, there are some important specific proposals where I have strong concerns because of their risk to regulatory independence. For the future ICO to be able to hold government to account, it is vital its government's model preserves its independence and, its, and is workable within the context of the framework set by Parliament and with effective accountability. The current proposals for the Secretary of State to approve ICO guidance and to appoint the CEO did not sufficiently safeguard the independence. I urge the government to reconsider these proposals to ensure the independence of the regulator is preserved. 
We will be bringing you more information on the consultation as we go through November. Bear in mind that the closing date is November the 19th for the consultation, so if you do wish to get in your responses, do go and download the document from the gov.uk website because it is quite a weighty read and will take you some time to work your way through the consultation. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurety production. Until next time, bye-bye.